Thank you, Voxology. Uh, you really have reminded us that our world does need Christ, that Christ is the answer. Christ is the hope who brings abundant life. And thank you so much for using your talents to lift high the name of Jesus here in this place today. Does my alma mater proud Belmont University, where I met my wife as well. We are, are not as musical as you guys are, but we, we do love good music, especially music that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for using your gifts and talents to do just that today. Today we're going to begin a new series. November kind of crept up on us, I feel like, even though it doesn't quite feel like November outside right now. It's 77 degrees. Ron Landis had turned off the cooling tower, the cooling system here a couple weeks ago and said, oh, it's almost November, we'll be fine, but uh, we had a wedding yesterday and we made sure that the air was back on and kicking. So all this year we've been reading through the Bible together in 2017. It's not too late to join us. You have two more months. There are bookmarks in the North and South Welcome Centers that have the reading plan. That's what my wife and I use. There's also full pages that have the entire reading plan. There's apps you can get for your, your uh, phone or whatever. I encourage you to join us as we are reading the Bible together in 2017, and, and all this year I've been attempting to preach from the text that we've been in from that week previous. Mostly we've stuck to that, but I'm going to deviate from that plan slightly here these next two months. You may have noticed that I've been alternating between Old Testament and New Testament each month, right? So in uh, January we started out in Genesis, that's a good place to begin, right, for January, and then in February, we jumped to the end of Matthew to, uh, to, to focus on the, the last words of, of Christ there. And then in March, we jumped back into the Old Testament, into Deuteronomy. That was a fun series. And then in April, we jumped back to the New Testament for Easter for a little bit, uh, for the, the Gospels, for the Easter text. And then we finished with First and Second Samuel in April. And then we did the Gospel of John for May, then First and Second Chronicles for June, Acts in July, then the Psalms in August, and then Reverend Trey Heyman kicked us off in September with 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians the rest of September, and then last month we finished with Isaiah and Jeremiah, and now we're approaching the end of our Bible readings these last two months. So we officially started the book of Hebrews yesterday in our Bible reading plan, and we're supposed to finish the book of Hebrews because the New Testament's so much shorter than the Old Testament. We're supposed to finish it next Saturday. Well, I thought two weeks wasn't sufficient for Hebrews. So we're going to slow down a little bit and take some time this month to dwell in the book of Hebrews these next four Sundays, including today. And then I'm going to cheat as well. Instead of going back to the Old Testament to do the Minor Prophets in December, we're doing Minor Prophets right now on Wednesday nights. It's been really a fascinating study together. But we're going we're gonna to jump to the New Testament again, and we're going to do Revelation during Advent, and if you say, that sounds crazy, I don't think it is. I think it's going to fit. Well, I really do. I think Revelation is about the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, the Lamb who is the answer that our world so desperately needs right now that Voxology just reminded us of. So I'm excited about Advent and Revelation. It's going to be called Follow the Lamb. I don't want to get ahead of us, though. Let's talk about Hebrews. Hebrews is, is going to set us up beautifully for Advent. It's going gonna, it's gonna to put us in where our hearts need to be to receive the Lamb of God who comes into the world. We officially began reading this book, like I said, yesterday, and, and, and Hebrews is a, and it's an anomaly in our Bible. It's really a strange book in a lot of ways. It doesn't really fit in 
with any of the other books in our Bible. It's called the letter to the Hebrews, but it's not really a letter. You know, most of the letters in our Bible, all of the letters in our Bible besides Hebrews have these nice introductions who tell us who's writing, who they're writing to, maybe why they're writing, all that kind of helpful information. Hebrews has none of that. The only reason we think it's a letter is because the last couple of verses in the entire book say, oh, by the way, send some greetings to Timothy and so-and-so. So that's the only hint that we have, that it's a letter. It doesn't read much like a letter either. It's, it's very carefully constructed arguments building on one another, leading most scholars to say it's really more of a sermon. It's kind of a sermonic text more than an epistle. And then it's also really strange because we scholars have no consensus at all as to who the author of Hebrews is, actually. Church tradition, of course, early on assumed it was Paul because Paul wrote a bunch of letters. Might as well be Paul who wrote Hebrews, right? But even early on, a lot of the church scholars said, no way Paul wrote this. This doesn't have Paul's fingerprints on it. It doesn't sound like Paul. The, the style's a lot different. The vocabulary's a lot different. Even the arguments that Hebrews is making are different from the letters that, of Paul that we know Paul wrote. Some early theories said maybe Paul's buddy Barnabas, who was his missionary companion, maybe he wrote it. Others say that the, the highly technical Greek that's in Hebrews and even some medical language Maybe Dr. Luke wrote it. Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. A lot of leading scholars think that, that Luke wrote it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, who we celebrated so well in this place on Wednesday night last week at our Reformation celebration. If you missed it, it was a really beautiful time. We'll do it again in 500 years. Uh, we, uh, he had this great theory that Apollos, remember Apollos in, in 1 Corinthians, who was a great evangelist who had come into Corinth and was teaching people. Martin Luther was convinced that Apollos wrote Hebrews. But my favorite, my personal favorite theory is that Hebrews was written by a woman. I, maybe it's true that Priscilla, who was the tent-making friend of uh, Timothy and Paul, right? She was Aquila's wife. We know that she was a teacher, that she was something of a scholar, apparently. She hung out with Paul a lot. She was a friend of Timothy's. We know she was a leader in her church, there's a lot of evidence, actually, to support that Priscilla may have written Hebrews. But the, the bottom line is, really, we have no definitive answer as to who wrote Hebrews. Actually, that's not true. We do have a consensus that the same God who authored the rest of the Bible wrote Hebrews. That it is part of the canonical holy scriptures, and every word of it is God-breathed and useful for teaching and reproach. So as we dive into Hebrews, we know that it's God's word today. We don't know exactly whom it was written to either. The early church called this letter the letter to the Hebrews because it seemed to have been written to Jewish Christians because there are lots and lots, as you'll see in our text today, of Old Testament references in the book of Hebrews. It seems to be about utilizing the Old Testament to show the greatness of Christ now. There's lots of references to the Old Covenant, to the prophets, to the Psalms, all those texts. And Hebrews is, is known throughout the literary world as a masterpiece. It's such a beautifully constructed book. It's so beautifully written. It's so elegant in its argument. But I've also noticed that it can be difficult to understand at times as well. I read in one book that uh, I've heard it said that Hebrews is like an eccentric millionaire 
It's rich, but puzzling. I think that's true. Hebrews is meant to inspire. It's meant to to engage a a struggling group of believers. It's meant to excite them and to get them going out the door into what God has for them. You see, Jewish Christians in the first century didn't really fit the mold of the Roman culture around them. The Romans had allowed Jews to exist in their Jewish kind of ways, but now Jewish Christians were throwing all that out the window. They were breaking the accepted Jewish rules that were placed on them, and they were severely persecuted on all sides by Jews and by Romans. They were even accused of being cannibals who feasted on the body and the blood of some dead guy from Nazareth. We know from the text of Hebrews that many of them experienced imprisonment, that they suffered the loss of personal property at unjust causes. They, they suffered greatly for the name of Christ. And this writer, whoever they may be, comes in like a, like a head coach who's giving a halftime speech to their team who's getting beat up, to their team who's being heckled by a ruthless crowd, to their team who's despondent, who's losing hope quickly of ever possibly seeing victory at the end of the fourth quarter. But the coach is wise, maybe because it's a woman, I don't know, comes into the locker room and they give them these words to this exhausted and discouraged team. Maybe you can relate to that today. Let's stand together if you're able and, and hear the beginning of of this letter, of this speech to the team here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. and Your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. I don't know about you, but that's an interesting way to begin a halftime speech if I'm the coach of the team. But this coach, again, is a wise coach, and they know what they're doing. A deflated, beaten-down team needs to hear that their champion is worth fighting for. They need to know that in the end, he will prevail, and they along with him. The supremacy of Christ is what Hebrews is really all about. That's why we're calling this series, Jesus is greater than blank. Whatever you want to put in the blank. Jesus is greater. The word for superior, the word for better in Greek shows up 13 times in this 13 chapters of Hebrews to show that Jesus is greater. He's better. He's more excellent than. He's superior to whatever it is that you want to insert into that blank. So the fact that our faith is rooted firmly in God's ultimate and final supreme revelation should bring us great joy. It should bring us abiding comfort. It should bring us strength to endure whatever it is that you may be going through today. I love the way this speech begins. Look at verse 1. The author says something like, look, in the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, guys like Moses, even Abraham, David can be even included in this. He spoke through the, the beautiful words of Isaiah and Jeremiah that we read last month. And that was great. But now, he's spoken to us by coming to us himself. In his own flesh. I told you this would set up Advent nicely, right? You see where this is going? This is the difference between, you know, getting your new iPhone delivered by the postman or having the CEO of Apple show up at your house, knock on your door and say, here's your new phone, let me show you how to use it. And sitting down at your kitchen table over coffee and and breaking that thing open and showing you how to use it. it. It'd be like... The, the difference of the, the eventual winner of the national presidential election showing up at your house to announce the results of the polls. And, and those metaphors fall woefully short, right, in the end. What, what this is saying here is that the Son of God, who is God, one with the Father before all time, now and forever, came to give us God's news himself. That Jesus is the one who is the heir of all things, it says here in verse 2. He's the heir of all things because he's the one through whom the universe was created. You see, Jesus serves as both the agent of creation and the goal of creation. He's the means by which God spoke his word, the Lagos, into being And he's what all things are returning to as the Son of God. At our Reformation celebration on Wednesday, I I, I told you that my professor mentioned that soli deo gloria, glory be to God alone. What that really means is, is that all things come from the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And everything returns to the Father through 
the Son in the Spirit. Therefore, we have no claim of boasting, no right to brag about anything on our own except in what God does. And it's all through Christ Jesus. That's why all glory is to God alone. And Jesus is the means by which God is making all things new. In the Old Testament, you know, we we get these hints about God's plan to redeem all things, right? We get just little little whispers of the eventual truth of that God himself is going to come rescue this fallen, broken world that desperately needs him. But those are just little tiny slivers of the truth, just little glimpses, little, little hints at what is to actually come to pass. God has spoken now the full truth to us, definitively, finally, through Jesus Christ. You and I call this full truth the gospel, the good news that that God has not, in fact, abandoned us here to our own sins, our own devices, our own abilities, but he has entered into our brokenness in order to redeem us and the whole creation back unto himself. Then verse 3 is so rich. We could spend months on verse 3. We won't, but you could. It starts out, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. You know that this light that we see in this sanctuary right now comes from the sun? And it, it took how long? Does anybody know how long it takes for the sun's light to radiate to earth? It takes 8 minutes and 20 seconds to be exact. 8 minutes and 20 seconds for the light of the sun to hit earth, warming the earth, giving life to the earth, radiating the earth with its warmth and light. The sun is constantly sending forth its rays to us. So Christ is the radiance of God. Just as the sun's rays reach the earth, so Christ has come to the earth, has reached the earth. The sun's rays give earth this natural light by the grace of God. Jesus comes as the light of God to give us supernatural life. Real life that we just sang about with boxology. Life that's abundant, that's exceedingly far greater than anything we could ask for or imagine on our own. And then verse 3 says that Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. You know, the original Greek here gives the, the idea of a stamp. You know, a stamp bears the exact imprint of whatever put its stamp on it. The, it makes me think of notary publics. Who's a notary public here? Anybody a notary? Awesome. It's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? That's, that's great that, that you can be a notary. I think it's like some power. You have a stamp? Is that right, Becca? Cool. Do you have it on you? I would, just, I would carry that with me all the time, being like, anybody need this? I could do this. I'm a notary. That's a pretty cool thing. And that stamp, when you see it on a document, means that Becca Carey, who has gone through a rigorous process and who is an authorized figure in public life by the government of, I don't know if it's state or federal, I don't know what it is, but it sounds cool. And you can stamp things and make it official that, that her hand, who is authorized, has held that document and has validated that what it says is true or something like that. <laughs> So Jesus bears the imprint of the authority of God. He comes to us showing that God has indeed put his hand on him in order to accomplish his work 
in this world. And then it says, Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. The image here is not like, you know, uh, the Greek god Atlas, right, who carries the globe on his shoulders. That's not what this is saying. The way that, that Christ upholds the universe, this is awesome, is, is by his word, by his creative, powerful, efficient word that he speaks into the created order now in order to sustain it by his power, the power of his word. Because Christ does not uphold the world on his shoulders. We know that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 3 ends with this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the majesty of God the Father. Not only is Jesus the agent and the goal of creation. Not only is he the radiance of God, not only is he the exact imprint of God, but he's also the one who cleansed us from our sins. Whoa. We, we may be in awe of the cosmic greatness of God in these first bit, but, but now it's personal. Now what it's saying is that Jesus is the one who purified you and me and made us clean before the holy God. It gets personal now. Where is Jesus now? It says here that he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. People say Jesus is everywhere. Yeah, okay. That's true. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is present with us. But this says that Jesus is seated in glory at the right hand of God the Father. What does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, let's skip ahead. I don't have time to go through all of Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews will come back to this idea of the seated Christ in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 11 through 14. It'll be on the screens here. The author's gotten to this long, long, starting in chapter 2, uh, this long argument about priests. You know what priests are? Priests are go-betweens. Priests are the ones who stand between God and between people. You know, Catholic priests in their services used to stand at the altar like this, and they would do all of their stuff facing the cross. They were a go-between between the people and God. That's what a priest did. It stood in between. It was a mediator, an intermediary for the people of God to God. And the argument that the writer of Hebrew makes is that Jesus is our great high priest who is better, superior, more excellent than all the other priests ever. He's unlike any other priest in history. Look at verse 11 here, chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, whenever you see that but in, in New Testament, it's always good news. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Then he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you and me. You see, priests in Israel would have to constantly stand at the altar, you know, just making the same old burnt offering sacrifices day after day, month after month, year after year. 
But no matter how many lambs, how many bulls, how many doves that they offered onto the altar, the sins of the people were still more numerous. It was an exercise in futility. Have you ever tried raking leaves on a windy day? Or, or even using a leaf blower? That's even more infuriating. I've tried it before. It is absolutely an exer- exercise in futility. It's incredibly frustrating. The leaves seem to go everywhere except for... And, and you can't fight the wind. It's always going to be stronger no matter what kind of awesome leaf blower you have. I upgraded mine. still no match for the wind. That's the idea of these priests here. That's how the sacrificial system in Israel must have felt to the priests who stood there day after day making the same old sacrifices, availing nothing. Even more so, the poor people who kept coming with their lambs and their doves and their goats and their bulls and rams and oxen, knowing that their sins were never ultimately taken away. It was only a temporary fix. But Jesus changed all that. He was a perfect sacrifice. Fully God, fully human. The spotless Lamb of God. The perfect Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He sat down because His work was complete. Once and for all. He meant it on the cross when He said, it is finished. You know, I love to come in after raking leaves and futile efforts, knowing that my work is done, the yard college football is on, and I, I get me a, a glass of water and sit on my, my new couch. We got a new couch Morgan's parents got for us. It's awesome. It's got recliners on it. You can put your feet up. And when I sit down, I, I, I may make a, a big, ah, yeah. And Morgan may roll her eyes. I do that sometimes, don't I, Morgan? <laughs> Because my work is done, and I can sit, I can rest, knowing that the work is done. So Christ has accomplished salvation for his children through his work on the cross. It is finished, thanks be to God. Then verse 4 tells us that this also means that Jesus must be, therefore, far superior, more excellent than, better than the angels, the heavenly beings. They're still serving. They're still doing their work, flying around the throne of God, constantly praising Him, giving Him glory. They're not done. It is not finished for the angels. And it says here that Jesus, His name is more excellent than their name. What is that about? Well, the the word that's used here for name isn't just something like, you know, I call Jude, Jude, and May, May. This has to do with identity. It has to do with what their essence is. So what is Jesus' name? According to God here, what's, what's his essence? What's his identity? It says in the next verse, verse 5, the author quotes from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 to give us that answer. Jesus' name is Son. His name is Son, the Son of God. And everything, therefore, that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son as the heir of all things. The author goes on to quote five additional Old Testament texts. I know we don't have time to go through them all. I won't, I won't do it today, but... They basically all show us that the Messiah is vastly greater than all the heavenly beings, the messengers of God that are known as angels. Angels are awesome. We don't know a whole lot about them. I believe they're absolutely real because the Bible says so. We know that angels show up at times in human form. I believe that still happens. We know that happens in Genesis to Abraham. 
and Sarah, at the time, Abram and Sarai. We know that some angels are protector angels. We know that some angels are warrior angels, that there's an angel army just waiting behind the clouds of of heaven, waiting for Jesus to return and break into our world and, and fix it, like we just sang about with Voxology. We know that some angels are, are, are about the work of praising God continually. They're all created by God to administer his ways and carry out his business. So what does it matter that Jesus is greater than they are? Well, just two points here that I want to close with. Two main things. First off, Jesus is better than the angels because the law was given through angels. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect now such a great salvation? You see, the, the law that was given to God's people at Mount Sinai was full of very just, very fair penalties for each transgression. Every rule had a fair consequence that went with it. It was clear that for those who broke the law, for those who dared to defy the law, the the ultimate just penalty was death. Death is what breaking the law always ended in. But the law was not given through God's Son The law was declared by angels, it says here. But Jesus Christ came to declare a better word. He has spoken grace and truth into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the gospel so that we need not live under law anymore. We need not live under threat of death anymore. We're free in Christ. Thanks be to God. The second reason that we need to know that Jesus is better than the angels is is found in verse 5 here, chapter 2. For it was not right, the author says, it it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. What does that mean? Well, in the present world, apparently God has given this world to the angels to preside over. The angels administer God's ways in our world. In this broken world which desperately needs Jesus. They administer God's ways in a second-hand, kind of middleman, intermediary kind of way. But in the world to come, Christ himself will sit on the throne of the new heavens and the new earth, administering God's ways himself. Already he sits on the throne of heaven. He, he sits next to the, God the Father, initiating this new age in which we live now, but not fully yet. This age has begun with Christ's enthronement after he ascended into heaven, but it won't fully, fully realize its fullness until Jesus returns to bring it into the full glory of the new creation and us along with him. The point here is that Christ is greater than whatever you want to put in the blank. Whatever you're facing today, In him is life and life to the fullest. Hope is found in him. Joy is found in him. Ultimately, freedom is found in Christ. Let's not forget that. His ways are so much better than anything this world has to offer. It's easy to forget about Jesus in the midst of all this other church stuff, right? Let us not love the body of Christ more than Christ himself. 
Let us not get caught up in the busyness of the body and neglect to love Jesus Christ first and foremost. We're so distracted, I know, we're so tempted by the things of this earth. But let us remember in our hearts that Jesus is greater. When we do that, then we get back on the path of life and flourishing. In the words of the old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for sending your own son to this fallen world to give us a better word than the word of the law, to give us words of grace, words of truth, words of comfort, words of of true healing. God, you have given us the fullness of your revelation found in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. God, we can never repay you for the work that you've done for us, that you have paid the penalty that we all owed for our sins. But I pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Help us to go forth from this place today holding you first in our hearts. May we be captivated by you, O God. May we truly believe what we say with our mouths, that Jesus is greater than anything this world has to offer. Lord God, we thank you for the reminder we've heard this morning of the abundant life that comes through Christ. May we hold fast to that life, forsaking all else in this world, knowing that you are greater. You're greater than cancer. You're greater than divorce. You're greater than poverty. You're greater than all the stresses and anxieties of this world. You're greater than our sin. You're greater than addiction. You're greater than imprisonment. You're greater than not knowing what's next. You're greater than loneliness and depression and anxiety. All those things, God, you are greater. Help us to believe that in our hearts today. We love you. We pray this all in our high, the high and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now, a chance for you to respond. Maybe you've never accepted the free gift of salvation that Jesus Christ offers through his atoning work on the cross. If you've never done that, I invite you to come forward today and receive Christ as Lord. I'd love to talk with you about that today. Maybe you're not a member of a church and you need to, to be a part of a family of a church. You know that God's calling you to get back in church, to be a part of what God's doing. We'd love to talk with you here about membership at Woodmont Baptist Church. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, maybe you just know that your heart's gone after things of this world and you want to find those things growing dim in the light of the face of Jesus Christ. I invite you just to turn your eyes upon Jesus during this time. He is the solid rock. All else is shifting sand in this world. If your life's not built on Jesus Christ, then everything else will let you down eventually. Let's stand and sing about Jesus our Lord on Christ the solid rock.